Well, good morning, church. One Seed Church, the church that shares the word of God, which is the seed. It's so simple, yet we complicate it with our brains. <sighs> if I look a little tired today, I was struggling because I was up real late last night to like eight. Because when you're 39 and you got four kids, it's four kids, it's not four, it's four kids, four kids. You got four of them, eight feels like 2 a.m. And I had to go to a daddy-daughter dance, which was my first time ever. Anybody ever been to daddy-daughter dance? Mother? It was neat, but kind of strange. I felt like I was in a twisted nightclub in a weird wedding because there was a bunch of grown men with little short women next to them. It looked really freaky and inappropriate and strange and probably shouldn't have said that, but that's what went through my head. And then, you know, what's really funny is they had lemonade on tap. They had all you can drink hot chocolate and they had uh, water. And man, as soon as the music hit, I'm thinking, I don't want to dance. None of these dads will dance, right? That's weird. That's weird. The wives have to talk to dads in the dance. And, and there's his dad out there, and he's like, I mean, he's going at it like at 6 o'clock. I'm like, dude, who are you trying? You're not impressing me. I don't care. You don't need to show off to me. It was really weird. And he was like cutting it up, and I was feeling really boring and dull after watching this guy who only lasted about five minutes because he exerted so much energy in that first few, few minutes. I don't think he danced the rest of the night, but it was cool. I got to spend some one-on-one time with my daughter which, believe it or not, is unusual because we have four and they're always <clears throat> fighting for attention. And it, it really was kind of a revelation to me, as sad as it sounds, but I went to bed thinking, wow, I should do that more often. I should spend one-on-one time with each of them. It's different than when they're all together. So I'm not really that tired. That was just a joke because, you know, it's 8 o'clock and I'm old now, so, so 8 o'clock is, is late to me. I'm always dozing off by 9. My wife stays up late. I'm in bed by 9. So 8 o'clock was pushing it. And they didn't have any coffee either. So I'm going to have to write somebody on that. Even though it was a free event. That was a joke. I won't write nobody. But listen, being at this thing with all these kids, it reminded me of when I was a kid and I had passion to be a singer. Let me tell you, I, was, uh, I wanted to be the little chubby white Janet Jackson. That's what I wanted to be because I was a little chubby white kid, but I wanted to be Janet Jackson and Michael. And I don't know anybody that you know, I don't know if you know the histories of the Jackson, but I had like the book on the upbringing, uh, Indianapolis and the Motown and all that. And Michael, you know, he debuted the moonwalk. At, it was called Motown 25. And it was considered the greatest performance of all time. And they said he cried afterwards because it's so bad. I didn't, I didn't do a good job when I did that moonwalk, you know, whatever. It was the greatest thing of all time. And I remember watching that as a kid and I'm like, I'm going to do that. I got, I got the old man hat. I didn't have the, the cool beaded jacket. I had a white vinyl jacket with zippers. I had an old man hat from like a dollar store, wherever they got them back then, Walmart, Kmart. <clears throat> And I had, the, I had the whole, you know, I had all that down, and I'd, and I'd do all that, and then the dance was over. That's, the, that's where I stopped learning it. And then I got in the, I was a weird kid. I got into Janet Jackson, and I knew the Rhythm Nation, you know, uh, five, four, three, two, one, Janet. And they'd all do the, the like, military dance thing. No one's, no one's seen this but me, evidently. And that's okay. It was, people gave me deer in headlights back then, so I expect the deer in headlights 
today, it's okay. Remember, weird is not always bad, it's just different. Why are you telling me this, Jeff? Daddy-daughter dance freakiness. Janet Jackson. So I was insecure. And when I discovered I had an ounce of talent to sing, it was like the only thing I was good at at that age. I couldn't do sports. I was slow. I got teased a lot. And when I began to sing, I felt like myself stick out from the crowd a little bit, like maybe maybe I could do this good. Maybe this is something I could do good. So I wanted to be Janet Jackson. And my motive was to be on stage someday. I would pretend in my mom's basement until I was almost 20 with Janet and Michael, and I'd run around the basement when no one was home, and I would be on stage, man. I would be on it, doing it, and it was real to me. Eventually, I moved to Nashville and pursued it for real. But as I got older, this desire to be like Janet, I kind of outgrew it because I got in wrestling. I started working out. I no longer was getting teased, and I started actually having friends. And so my motive to be Janet and Michael didn't really appeal to me anymore. Uh, So I started asking myself, you know, when I moved to Nashville, why why am I really pursuing music still? Because it was always about that. It was about the attention because I was insecure. And it was about filling this insecurity with a temporary security of people going, oh, you're so great. You're so great. I can't believe you sound just like her and you're 14 years old. My voice hadn't changed yet, okay? I had a little girl voice for quite some time. I didn't shave till I was like 16. That's why I favor Janet and Michael over, you know, Males, other male singers, because my voice was so high for my young adult life. <clears throat> but when I got older and I got to Nashville, I had to reevaluate because I was no longer motivated by this desire to be them. I, to me, it became superficial. I no longer wanted that. In fact, I despised that shallow attention people give to musicians and all those things, because living in Nashville, it's everywhere. And I quickly saw the other side of that world. And someone introduced the idea to me to sing for God instead. And I thought, I would never do that. Christian music is so corny. It's so 15 years behind the times, you know. And uh, at the time, it was just shifting where all of a sudden all these genres were popping up for contemporary Christian music. It was no longer just like old traditional gospel. Uh, there was rap. There was rock. There was R&B. It was, it was really changing. So I changed, my heart changed, and at the time, I, I decided to pursue uh, a career as a Christian artist, and, and, and that became my new motive for why I sang, and then it gave me purpose because I thought, okay, I was so obsessed with this as a kid because God wanted me to use it for him, and not to be Janet or Michael Jackson, but to actually go further and, and be, be doing it for God's glory. So my motive changed. My motive changed from something that didn't sustain because I outgrew it, to something that has sustained since because it's an eternal satisfaction that the motivation never dies because it's for God, which is, there's nothing greater than you can be motivated for than for God, right? But see, God's motive is not always our motive. When we define why we do things and why God does things based on our motives, we miss the revelation of what God is trying to show us in that situation. We get them out of alignment quite often. We predefine an expectation of how God will work in our situations, but our faith never expands because it can never see beyond these potentially false preconceived notions of who God is and what he wants to do in us and through us. See, we got to be slow to speak and quick to listen. James, the brother of Jesus, says in the book of 
James, in our communication with the Lord, is often he is trying to give us a greater deliverable than the miracle we've requested. God, make me a rock star. I never said, but why would God want me to be that? That didn't make sense. So sometimes our motives get out of alignment. I want to look at a passage of scripture today you might have heard of. In my opinion, it's the greatest miracle outside of Jesus resurrecting himself from the grave is when he resurrected his buddy Laz. You know, Laz over in Beth, Bethany, Lazarus. You guys know who Lazarus is, yeah? Bethany was a small town. So if we were on a map, okay, here's, here's the Middle East. Here's Jerusalem. Bethany is right here. It's just southeast, like a mile or two from Jerusalem. And if you're looking at the map, is this a great visual? You guys get it? You see the map here? Here's Galilee, okay? These are regions. Here's Samaria. Here's Judea. That's where Judea is. I mean, that's where Jerusalem is. Here's Idumea. That's a mouthful. Here is the Dead Sea, and here's the Jordan River up to the Sea of Galilee, which you might have heard of. And then over on this side of the river, not Illinois, is Jordan. So at this time, Lazarus from Bethany... He has Martha and Mary, his sister, and Jesus is close friends with all of them. I wouldn't say they're like best friends, but they're close. And word gets out that Lazarus is sick. And at the time, Jesus is over by Jordan. He's, he's a two-mile, he's a two-day journey by foot to get back to Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem. He's, he's over here, they call it beyond Jordan, because it's at the Jordan River right on the other side in Jordan, outside of Judea. If we go to chapter 11, verse 20 through 44, word has just gotten to Jesus from Martha that Laz, that's what I call him, Lazarus is such a long word. We have short names for all our kids, so I'm going to call him Laz. She had just given him word that Laz was sick. And verse 20 starts off, Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary, quiet one, was still sitting in the house. Martha bumped into Jesus finally outside of Bethany, somewhere in between. He said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He's died at this point because previously in the chapter... Martha told Jesus, and he said, he's not dead, he's sleeping. He's like, no, he's dying. He's, he's like, he's not dead, he's sleeping. And Jesus just stayed where he was. He, he just did nothing. How would, how would you guys react if you call 911, and they say, we'll be there in a couple days. Might be a lawsuit, right? Might be something nowadays that, that wouldn't fly, but that's what happened. She said, Lord, my brother's dying, you know, the one you love, the disciple you love. He said, he's sleeping, and he hung out for two more days, two days away. Could even get to Laz, four days. Jesus is a little chill at that point, kind of freaking Martha out. She said, Lord, if you had been here, I can see her stomping her foot. My brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, okay? Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, 
though he may die, he shall actually live. See, when we die here, but when we are resurrected through Christ, we live eternally in heaven. It's getting that. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, is who is to come into the world. And when she said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher, that's what they call Jesus, has come and is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she was in the house back near town. She arose quickly and came to him. Now, Martha, I don't know if you guys know about Martha and Mary, but Martha's kind of outspoken, and Mary's kind of the quiet one. Now, this is still, so Mary went back out of town. It says, now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in a place where Martha met him, so somewhere in between. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and were comforting her and consoling her because of Lazarus' death, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her saying, well, she's going to the tomb to weep. That's where she must be going because she's so quiet. She wouldn't go anywhere else. But then when Mary came to Jesus, saw him, she fell down at his feet, and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She said the same thing. Martha said, this may be a little softer. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews and the Jews that came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. So let me explain this for a second. We'll get this confused all the time. The God Almighty who took it upon himself to become flesh, who can raise anything from the dead, was not sad that someone was dead, okay? He could raise him like that. A groan, the Bible says a spirit makes intercession for infirmities when we know not what we should pray for. It makes intercession, intercession. It comes through and takes over for us when we know not what to pray for. So in his spirit, he was troubled because he could see they weren't piecing it all together. They're, they're sad and freaking out about Lazarus dying when from the beginning he waited, he knew what was going on. And so he's like, you know, like when your kid does something and they're just not getting it. And you're like, someday you'll understand what I'm trying to tell you. So he's groaning in his spirit and he does feel sadness because of the situation having to happen to begin with. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now, Jesus had all the emotions we did. He wept, he was happy, he was sad, he was tempted and tried just like us. Otherwise, we could not really claim him as a fully proof, uh, redemptive savior if he was not tested the same as us. So he wept. He had feelings. God has feelings. The Spirit of God has feelings. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. He's so sad. Jesus Lazarus is dead. See how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? This is Jesus, right? Jesus said, take away the stone at the tomb. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. Sorry, Lord, I don't think that's a good idea. Lord, if you had been here, Lord, I don't think I should roll away the tomb because he's been dead four days. She's kind of got to figure it out, she thinks. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Remember to Peter when he walked on the water, he said, why did you doubt when I called? Where was your faith? If you had faith of a mustard seed, on and on. This is a, a pattern. Christ is telling the people. They ask, he delivers, and then they doubt. 
Did I not say to you that if you would just believe, you would see the glory of God? He's trying to show the glory of God. So he's, he's groaning in his spirit because they're not, they're not connecting the dots. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. That's how I imagined it. I don't think his voice was as high as mine. But. And he who died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. He let him go. He rose. He did it. He did the miracle. After reading this passage, like, what, what do I talk about? What, what, is the, what is the point behind what Jesus is doing here? And is, the point is, appropriately titled, Miracle Motives. Miracle Motives. We seek the miracle, but we don't acknowledge the motive behind the miracle. We seek what we can see, but we miss what we can't see. That was Jesus' whole teaching over and over. See that which is greater, which you can't see. See, God desires that you receive the motive behind his miracles, more so than the miracle. The miracle is for you. The motive is what he's really trying to give you, though. The miracle is to get your attention. It's like the fruit of what is really valuable, which is the motive. God desires you receive his motive behind the miracle. What's a motive? Well, a motive is something you have a reason for doing. What is your motivation to something? What is your motive to go to work? My motive is to make money or I don't get to keep my house because the bank will take it. And so my motive to get up and go to work, no matter what, even when I don't want to, which works for some people, some people just don't go, is I got to pay my bills. What's your motive for trying to preach the gospel to, to the world. My motive is that people will be saved and go to heaven. So that motivates me to get up out of bed and work my little hiney off and do what I got to do because I want people to go to heaven and I'm going to give it my best shot while I'm still alive and walking this earth. That's my motive. Why are you motivated? What motivates you? When I met my wife, she was all about CSI, crime scene investigation. Yeah? She's back there. That's my wife, Michelle, if anybody ever wants to know. If you don't know that already, you figure it out eventually. In crime scenes, there's all, often an ulterior motive. Well, we know what a motive is. It's what you're made of it, motivated towards. What is an ulterior motive? An ulterior motive is when it's something you're doing that's really not what it's perceived on the surface. So when I tell you, I want to be your friend, I just like you so much, let's be friends, but I'm really trying to rob you when you're not looking. That's my ulterior motive. Or, you know, I, 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 I claim the gospel, but I'm really about impressing people and feeding my ego. That's my ulterior motive because I'm so insecure that I want to look the part, but I'm not really going to be the part because my real motive is just to be all about me and just receive, receive, receive and, and bask in the attention. That's an ulterior motive. It, it conflicts with what's being presented, which is the motive. We often misinterpret situations because our motives get out of alignment. I don't, I don't know if the women can relate to this. 
But maybe some of the guys can relate to this. If some, someday, some, sometime back in their life, you know, like when you're, you're like at the gym. I met my wife at the gym, by the way. This, this, this particular time it worked out. Other times, this is what I'm getting at. You know, you see, you see, the, you see the girl across the way, and, you know, you're kind of like, you know, you're, you're working out. You're pretending you don't see them, you know, because you're trying to be cool. You don't look, you don't look like that. You're trying to keep your integrity, but they, they see you, you know, and you're like, well, they, and on the inside, you're like, oh, they see me, they see me. And on the outside, you're like, well, you know, you're playing, you're playing it cool. But really on the inside, you're so excited because they're looking at you and you're like, they're, they're checking me out, checking me out. And, and then they, they do one of these and you're like, they're waving, they're waving to me. But you don't, you don't let that show you like, oh, she sees me. You know, you play, you play cool. You got to be cool at that age. And then she goes, no, no, get out of the way. And you turn around, and there's, there's a bigger guy behind you, and he, he's the one boy. And then you're crushed, and you go home, and you cry to your mommy. You see, her motive was to say hello to the guy behind me. My motive was that, to talk to her because I thought, what I thought and perceived was she was waving at me. That didn't really happen, by the way. But it could have, and it, you know, it happens in the movies, right? Point of illustration. So our motives get out of alignment sometimes. We misread the situation uh, between what we think and what God actually wants, and we get them confused, and we go, what? God, why did you do this to me? See, we have these uh, conflicting timelines with God. Our timelines are often way off course from, from God's timeline, and we, we, we rush God based on our understanding. You see, remember, Jesus waited four days. God waited four days. He wasn't impulsive about it. She, she was impulsive. You got to come right now. You got to come right now. And he just stayed there two days, and then it took him two more days to get there when he actually left. God's timeline has a reason, and that's why it's often different than ours, because the motive is different behind the timelines. not the same as ours. If it's impatient, it's not usually God. We ask God for miracles to problems, and we want them now. We want them now. But God doesn't deliver like that. When it's impatient, it's not of God. We tend to doubt his delivery if it's not in the time frame we expect. When I was a kid, I worked with my brother in a business my dad started, and one of the biggest jobs per year they had was for a big company uh, here in town that if they messed up this job, they could, the business could sink. And so the timeline was crucial. If the timeline wasn't in order, things would go out of whack. If we rushed the process, it was building crystal awards and framed awards and high recognition gifts. And if you rush the process, you damage a product, the customer is not happy, and they don't hire you back, and your business goes down the drain. So it's very important that that timeline each year is calculated very carefully, that the strategy is right on the mark. So God had a four-day timeline of exactly what he was trying to do here, his motive behind his miracle. And so we, we, we don't get that often. We, we don't see that. And if we compromise our timeline with God's timeline, we miss the miracle and the motive. We miss it all because we're impatient. Just think if God answered right when we asked for everything. I mean, churches would be blowing up. We'd be full next week. If I prayed for a new, God, give me a million dollars. Please give me a million dollars. And boom, I come home, there's a million bucks. Oh, man, I'm going back to church. God is a giver. 
Okay, next week, God, give me a Corvette. Just give me a Corvette, God. Please, God. I, I know just for your will, God, just a Corvette. Just a black one. Just a, a Z06. Okay, just a Z06 uh, Stingray. Uh, the, the, new, the new kind, you know, the kind with the Ferrari back in. You know, I, we get picky with God, too, when we're begging for our, our gifts. Church will be blowing up if that's how God delivered. If God delivered that way, why would we even have faith? What would be the point? There's no test. There's no testing our faith, our patience. There's no waiting. There's nothing because God would just give it to us. There'd be no need for faith. He doesn't work like that. God takes action consistently in the scripture, patiently, calculated. How do you take action to things? Are you impatient? Do you take action impulsively? Do you rush the process and the timeline, compromising the whole job and missing the blessing of the residual rehire uh, from the client? Because you rushed it. It's the same with God. So we have predefined expectations. Our our timelines get out of whack, and then we predefine how God is going to do it also. Do I ask God for things, or do I demand from him? Is my request reverent? You guys know the rich white ladies with the chihuahuas or the Maltese that keep them in the purse? Go around with them. If you do this, it's totally cool. If it's not, if, if, Dan, if you carry around a purse, it's cool. They got the dog in the purse, right? Okay. And they take it everywhere they go. And sometimes it reminds me of how we treat God. It's like, here's God. And God, oh, you pet him on the head. He's doing good first. Now shove him back in there when we don't need him right now because we're busy doing something else. And we kind of, we kind of like pull him out when we need him. And that sounds harsh, but that's how we treat our relationship with God. Sometimes. Like our Maltese in our purse. God has no counselor. He has no beginning. He has no end. He can't fit in a purse. Nor would he want to. We predefine how God will work and when. We don't approach God reverently that it's sincerely his will. We just demand from God. He is our superior in all ways. He's our God. He's our counselor. We have to be reverent with how we approach the Lord. If you had been here, Lord, I'm not saying she yelled, but man, I can totally see her frustrated. Lord, if you had been here, she thought she had the answer. She predefined what God was supposed to do. God was supposed to come right when she called, but he said, that's not right. Sorry, it's different. Sometimes we don't even recognize what God is giving us. It's tough watching someone suffer. You get a groaning in your spirit when you see someone right in front of you suffering uh, ignorantly because they don't understand. My second son, he's five, but when he was four, he's got an obsession with superhero band-aids. And the kid, if he gets a scratch, man, you think he's bleeding to death and there's not even any blood and he, he's got to have a band-aid. It doesn't matter if it's like not even cut the, cut the skin. He, I mean, the kid screams like, we call him Taz because he is like the Tasmanian devil sometimes. Not, not the devil of hell, just the Taz, Tasmanian devil. Not as bad. So we give him the Band-Aid, and he doesn't want to take a shower. He doesn't want to get it wet. He never wants to take the thing off. And I'm trying to tell him, oh, my son, I don't say it like this, but if I, if I did in my mind, I would say it like this, oh, my son, if you would just listen. So you've got you to let the wound get air. You've got to treat it with um, the, the stuff, you know, the cream. And you got, um, <laughs> I forgot the medicine name, ibuprofen. No, uh, you know, Neosporin, yeah, 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 Neosporin. 
Yeah, put Neosporin on it, buddy, because you want it to heal, and you got to wash the wound. you got to wash it clean like the blood of Jesus. You know, I'm telling him all this. He's going, give me my band-aid. This kid, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. One night he said, you don't know me. That's exactly how and what came out of his mouth. You don't know me. He was four, okay? So that's what I'm doing with at home. Pray for me. But in my spirit, I'm going, I'm growing, I'm going, just would listen. Just would listen. I could help you, but you're not listening. You think you have the answer. If you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. He's groaning in his spirit. Am I connecting? You guys getting this? Making sense? His motive was what he's trying to deliver, and they weren't, they weren't getting it because of a predefined expectation. When God delivers, we are so joyful, and God is the greatest, but when he doesn't, we go, where was he? He wasn't here. He left me. He didn't leave you. See, you turned this way and looked over here when he's still standing right there, or he's still in here. You know, he lives in our heart. Our heart is a garden, kingdom of God. The Jews immediately questioned, saying, is this not Jesus? You know, who did all the miracles? He couldn't raise this man? What's up with that? Thinking carnally. We think we know best and we forget who we are praying to. Is your request a reverent one? Who are you praying to? Do you remember? We walk in our own confidence and forget who our faith is supposed to be in. Is it? Your faith can be in a lot of things. Money, yourself. Your riches, they call it idolatry. If it's not of God, it's idolatry. If that, if that is your source of faith, and that's number one, golden calf, Exodus. It's easy to do. God's our Maltese, but money is our real savior. It's easy to do. We think we know best. We forget who our faith is supposed to be, and we have to swap those things. See, setting an expectation of that God will take care of it is a great thing. But defining how and when he's supposed to do it is poison and a bad thing. You can't timeline God. You have, that's why that's faith. You have to just say, you take care of it, God. You'll do the rest. That's all I need to know, God, is that you will do the rest. I have to say, raising Lazarus from the dead was pretty incredible. But what if God's motive was greater than such an awesome miracle? What if really that what we never saw, these, was greater? You see, God desires you receive the motive behind his miracle. A few years ago, a friend of ours had a stroke, collapsed in their front yard. Someone, neighbor saw him, rushed him to the hospital. They were paralyzed, couldn't talk, couldn't move, didn't look good. My wife and I went to the hospital, and there was other family there. I'll just say it was family. Everybody's worried she's going to die. But I had this weird feeling in my spirit. I was almost like in a good mood. It, it almost felt wrong. I'm like, what do I feel? What peace? I felt fine. There's a person that can't, I'm not sad, but I didn't feel trouble. And we were mingling around the hospital, waiting for different things, and God told him in my spirit, I wasn't ministering back then. Well, I didn't think. See, anytime you minister the word of God, you're actually ministering. So I was, and I didn't know it. 
He said, you need to pray. You need to go in there and get everybody together, and you're going to have them all pray together. We're going to heal this person. I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I want to do that. I'm not even like the main person in this family. I don't know if I should tell them they should pray, and they're going to look at me weird. And he said, that's what you got to do. I said, okay. So I gathered the family. I said, guys, we're going we're gonna to pray. We're going to pray over this person. I mean, she couldn't, she couldn't talk, nothing. She was fully paralyzed. And one guy starts walking out of the room. I say, hey, man, we need you. We need you, dude. He didn't feel, you could tell he didn't feel worthy to be in the room. It's not about that. It's about coming together and calling on the Lord in, in harmony together. So he came back. And we held hands and we prayed and we touched this woman. And the whole time I could feel the, the Holy Spirit telling me that this is going to be a testimony. This is what this is about. Yeah, we want the miracle. We want the person to come back. But there's a deeper motive here. God is telling me there's a deeper motive here that this person is going to turn to me and glorify me and tell people what I have done. Well, long story short, she did recover almost 100% and faster than most of the doctors had seen. In light speed, in a few months, she was up and walking, talking, driving. Everything was almost back to normal. She started coming to church. No one pushed her. We were part of a different church back then. She started coming to church. She started asking about baptism. When prior, she had it all figured out. She was what, what I call a cocky Christian, which is kind of contradictory because any real Christian knows that there's never a point where you know everything, and it's all about sanctification and learning more and growing. That's why it's called a walk with God. And when they kind of have it all figured out, it's a red flag saying they actually are missing the motive behind what this Christian walks about. But they came to church and they turned to God and, and we started telling the testimony. And, and so God had a purpose behind that healing. I really believe it, that that was to get her attention on him, that she, that he, just like here, had the powers of resurrection and he resurrected her. We see the miracle and rejoice, but we're not seeing the reason for it. Jesus said, greater is that which you can't see with these eyes than that which you can see. See, he mentions the spiritual eyes and ears, but they think with their physical eyes and ears, the Pharisees, this is another scripture. Same concept. Greater is that which you can't see with these. But you got to open your spiritual eyes and ears. His motive was to declare he was God. Why he did it. That's why he did it. He waited intentionally to show his power as God to resurrect the dead, and that's what he did. He saw Mary and Martha's doubt, and he knew they weren't understanding. Just like Colton, I knew a four-year-old's not going to understand what Neosporin's about. So it hurt me to watch him suffer, so I groaned in my spirit. See, God will take us to the end of our rope until we have no hope left, and he'll be standing right in front of you. He wants to show us who he is. When our focus is on us and our motives, and we're just thinking, if you had been here, we can't see. We can't see spiritually because we're telling God what he should have done. We're blocking his miracle by our motive at that point. Jesus told Martha, he will rise again. He just sleeps. Yet she concluded she knew best. His request to go to the tomb again, she cut him off. It's going to stink. I don't think you should do that. Jesus like, does this person not know who I am? My God. 
don't want me to open the tomb because of the smell? You know what I've smelled in my lifetime? I smell a lot of stuff. I'm God. It was foolish, yet ignorant. And that's what our children do. And that's how God looks at us as children. While we're growing, we're all children to the Lord. God has to make an example through a sensual experience. See, we're, we're sensual. We have our senses. And when things go beyond our senses, we're, whoa, he rose someone from the dead. It, 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 it blew our minds. It, it got past what our, our minds and our senses could, could define. So then he gets our attention. God's spiritual. So God does things in the spirit that we can't define. It's because we have senses. But he's spiritual. Spiritual can't be discerned by senses. Spirit has to be discerned by spirit. That's why he says, try the spirits that you may know. Is it of God or not? Because you've got to have the spirit to understand, is this the spirit? See where I'm going? That's the, that's the common denominator. The spirit of the Lord. Our senses can't do it. And our senses typically misinterpret, give, give us the opposite conclusion than what God is trying to show us. See, his weeping was, in fact, the situation had to take place altogether, just watching those people suffer when they didn't need to. But he knew he had to. I don't like to spank Colton, but I've given that kid some spankings that my other kids, I could just raise my voice and they, <laughs> okay, this kid, nothing works. You could spank him till he's blue in the face. He doesn't budge. That hurts as a dad. He can leave you feeling broken inside, defeated as a dad. And that's how God feels when we're just not getting it. We're, we're so carnally concluding in our own faith and, and abilities that we're missing such a simple thing he's trying to show us. Because God desires that we receive the motive behind his miracle. What if you could wipe away your fears because your faith was so strong? What if even when you didn't understand why God, you trusted anyway? Sounds simple, yet we struggle with that. Are you at the end of your rope? Do you declare in Jesus' name that I will refuse to doubt because I really want God's will, not my own? And if it's God's will, how can, how can we go wrong? Israel, when they had God on their side, they beat huge armies. So if we believe God is on our side, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to doubt. What could your life become if God's motives became your motives? That's what it's about, right? This whole life, we're trying to find this spot where we get on the same page with God. And it's always this tilling the garden and the seed gets corrupt and starts falling by the wayside because of our peers. And we have to keep it in line through sanctification and keep our motives in line. And once they get locked together, now you become as strong as that Israelite army that could never be defeated when God was on their side. If you could all stand to your feet with me, I want to leave you with one thought. <clears throat> you know, we're considered rich in, this, in the United States. We, we live a rich life. But we get, you know, we get used to it. So when you stop and think of all the blessings we have, we acknowledge, God, thank you so much for blessing me. Thank you for blessing my family. I used to do this all the time. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for your blessings. But never did I go, why is he blessing me? So I challenge you this week. I want you to remember two things. I want you to think about his motive behind why he's blessing you why he's performed miracles in your life. Was it for you? 
or was it for him or was it for you to see something in him and then think about some of the everyday blessings you take for granted right now that we have and go what what is God using this for why why is God giving me such a blessed marriage what does he want me to do why am I so financially at peace why am I struggling? Is there a blessing in my struggle? There often is. Actually, that's how the blessing comes. It's through the struggle because your faith grows. But I want you to think about whatever, wherever stage you're at, think about the motive behind the blessings you see him giving to you and your family all the time because that's going to give you deeper revelation on what your life's about and what you should be doing besides just absorbing the thank you cards you're giving God, which is a great thing to do. We should always give thanks. But he wants us to go deeper and see the motive behind the miracle or the blessing. If we could all pray together. Lord, we thank you, and we know the story of Lazarus is a powerful one. We can't understand how you could raise someone from the dead. But we believe the story because it's in the scriptures, and we believe the scriptures are infallible and from you, Lord, that they are life and they are spirit. And we pray we can take this word and apply it to our own lives in a practical way that it can help change us and increase our knowledge and our heart and wisdom in how our relationship with you is to be and what you would like us to do with our life and how we can serve you faithfully on any level that you desire. It doesn't have to be some big grandiose thing with a microphone. It can be in the small things. But God, show me your motive behind these miracles you've given me. You've given me these children. You've given me this job. You've given me this house and all these great things. What should I do, Lord? Give me your motive. Show me, Lord. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Ask and you shall receive. Knock and the door shall be open. God, we are thankful that we have an opportunity to praise you in this house. And we pray for your hand upon us as we go upon our week this, this upcoming week. In your precious name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody say amen.